0: well good morning let's take our bibles and turn to luke chapter 6 and we'll begin reading in verse number 17 in just a moment luke chapter 6 uh, verse 17 uh, there are certain uh, internships that people clamor for right you know, we live close to washington dc and there are all kinds of internships offered there and uh Young people who want to get into politics, they try to get internships with senators and Congress people, and and people in the medical field try to get internships at certain hospitals, and 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 they're under certain people. You can get your internship, and so certain law firms and government service jobs all come to mind. Uh, churches have internships too. Did you know that? Yes. And certain churches, people do clamor for internships there because uh, people feel like there is greater benefit to certain internships. But um, after the calling, the 12 that Jesus called had the ultimate internship, didn't they? Right after calling them, uh, Jesus immediately started showing them how to serve. And so if you'll stand with me, we'll see what that looked like. In verse number 17, And it says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you, have, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did, the false prophets. Lord, we thank you for this little passage of Scripture and incredible teaching of Jesus Christ here may we be encouraged and strengthened and um, may we also look at our own our lives Lord and ask ourselves um, hard questions about where our treasure is in his name we pray amen thank you so I want to get into a little bit of preliminary uh, teaching before we get into the actual preaching of the the, the Beatitudes here because uh, it's, it's really important. Part of my job as a pastor is to help you understand what you're reading and why you're reading it. And I know that sounds really simple. Hey, we're reading the Bible and it's supposed to be good for us, right? But a little bit more than that, this section of scripture is a parallel to what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. And I think everybody's familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, A lot of people will call this one the Sermon on the Plain. But when you look at the two, they are different in in several respects. For example, in verse number 17, it says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place. Now, I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but them is the twelve, right? He came down with them and stood on a level place. However, do you know what Matthew says? Matthew says... Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, critics will try to say, well, these guys are just shooting from the hip. These are traditions, and one person heard this tradition, another person heard this tradition. But in reality, these are written from eyewitness accounts, And so, I just want to ask you, how do we account for one coming down the mountain and the other one, and standing on a level place, and the other one going up on the mountain? How do we account for that? Well, let me see if I can help you out real quick. Uh, This is a picture from the edge of the traditional site where Mount of Beatitudes is. Now, um, that is, if you look, it's looking down on the Sea of Galilee, Right? And it's relatively level where I'm standing. That was back in 2012. If you turn around, guess what's behind me? Mountains. Okay. I was going to send you a picture. I was going to put a picture up from... Uh, when I was on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and you could see the traditional site is is relatively flat. It, it does slope towards the Sea of Galilee, but it's relatively flat. It's higher than the rest of the area, and there's mountains behind it, but I didn't stick it up there, mainly because where I'm standing right now is covered in banana plantations now. if you All around the Sea of Galilee, they have banana plantations, and so you can't, you can't go where I'm standing right there. But that, that easily explains how the two different counts say two different things. In other words, what we could say is that Jesus was standing on a plateau, couldn't we? a plateau above the Sea of Galilee. And so when you read that and you hear people say they're conflicting accounts, realize they're not conflicting accounts. The Bible is absolutely true even when you have two different authors seem to to come from two different perspectives, they're, they're true and they're both saying the same thing just from different points of view. Matthew also says that his disciples came to him. Now, if we're not careful, we can think of disciples as just the 12. I would say that probably most of us, when we hear the word disciples, we think of the 12, don't we? And we'll say his 12 disciples, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in many of the, the, the Gospels, they differentiate between the 12 and everyone else. And um, Luke says, and he came down with them And stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And so there are three groups mentioned here. The first group is the 12. Now remember the passage that we read last week, he called his 12 disciples. He separated them out from everybody else. He called them. And Luke says he went down the mountain with them. And then there's a second group. The second group is a great crowd of his disciples. That's the way the Bible uh, has it, his disciples. Now, who are these people? These are people who follow Jesus. They may believe that he is the Messiah. They may believe that he's a great miracle worker and some of them may genuinely be saved, but they are learners, they are disciples most likely moving along the continuum either towards salvation or towards greater sanctification. There's somewhere in there. Remember, when the Bible tells us to make disciples, the disciple-making process starts before somebody receives Christ as their savior, doesn't it? Because you want to see a conversion, then you want to see a following, and so that's making disciples. Then there is a, a third group, and this is the great multitude. They're uh, tang- tangentially related to Jesus. In other words, they, they are interested in Jesus. They're probably there just seeing the miracles, wanting themselves to be healed for whatever reason, and the Bible says that Jesus healed all of them, didn't it? He healed everyone, is what the Bible says, and, but they mainly serve to show how popular Jesus was at this time. And so people came from all over. Not only were they from Galilee, but Luke says that they came from Jerusalem. That's that's at least a 2-day journey. Judea, the surrounding political area of Jerusalem. Then it also says that there were people and they they most likely were Gentiles from the seacoast, from the Mediterranean Sea, Tyre and Sidon. That that again is probably a two-day journey from those two cities on the coast to get there to where Jesus is. Now, Jesus begins to speak to them, and this is where we're going to spend our time. We've we've talked about his healing and miracle working before, and so I want to get into what he actually says. And he begins to speak to them, but the question is, who is he speaking to? Well, look at the beginning of verse number 20 with me, because he's speaking to a specific group of people. Verse number 20 says this, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And so he's focusing not on the 12 and not on the great crowds, but he's focusing on his disciples. And Luke makes that point that what he's about to record that Jesus said. Jesus is saying to people who may or may not be sure that Jesus is the Christ, who may have just been saved or just growing in, in Christ Jesus, and he's speaking to these kinds of people. Does that make sense? Is that, is that helpful? And so he's not teaching the great multitude. He's not teaching necessarily the, the lost, uninterested people or the 12 apostles. And so verse 20 begins the sermon. Now I want you to know one more thing, and then we're going to get into the sermon itself. Matthew, how long is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew? It's, it's three chapters, chapter Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's, it's uh, pretty long. Probably not long as one of my sermons but uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I think. Um, but, but when you look at Luke, Luke doesn't even take a whole chapter on the sermon, does he? However, if you go further into Luke, you're going to find in Luke 11, verse number 33, a section of the Sermon on the Mount. And then if you go to chapter 12... In verse number 22, you're going to find another section of the Sermon on the Mount that in Matthew is in one big section. So what's going on there? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What, what's going on here? Why are they different? Well, you, you must remember that the Gospels are generally chronological. We're Westerners. We think in an exactly chronological order. And so then we, we debate. You know, John has, did John record two cleansings of the temple or one cleansing of the temple? Did it come at the beginning or the end? And we debate all that. The the authors of the gospels, they don't care about all that. They're generally chronological, but what they're doing is they are doing a couple things. One, they are giving a little bit different emphasis depending upon who their audience is. And and number two, they are summarizing the content of Jesus' preaching. Okay? This is some uh, Matthew, this sermon that Matthew or that Luke records, it's a summary. It's not, these are Jesus' exact words, it's just a summary of what he's uh, teaching. The third thing that gospel writers do is they arrange material thematically. Luke does it. Luke arranges material by themes. If you go to Matthew, if you know anything about Matthew, Matthew has five discourses. A discourse simply means uh, speech. Five speeches characterize Matthew. And so you have these differences going on. And I'm telling you these, these things in order that it helps you understand as you read Scripture because it is very important. Now, one more comparison, we're going to jump in. Look at Luke chapter 6 and verse number 20. And I'm going to throw up the beginning of Matthew's version of it. Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are you who are, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 6.20 says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, um, uh, what, what's going on here? I, I remember when I was younger, I would hear people say, I knew of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. That's, that's basically when my Bible knowledge was limited. And I'd hear people say, well, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. And I thought, what are they talking about? He says, poor in spirit. Then as I actually read my Bible, that's usually helpful, right? So I'm talking about when I was real young, I realized that Luke says, blessed are the poor. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What's going on here? Why are these two so different? Well, Matthew is writing to Jewish people, Jewish believers, most likely Jewish Christians, and maybe Jewish lost people as well. And Matthew, the way Matthew frames the Sermon on the Mount, he's taking it straight to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus says, you have heard, and what you read it, and you're like, well, that's not in scripture. Well, that's right, because that's what the scribes and Pharisees said. And so he's saying, you heard the scribes and Pharisees say this, but I say unto you. And so he's taking it straight there. Even with his beatitudes, that's what he's doing. However, Luke wrote to a government official and his name was Theophilus, lover of God. And Matthew, Luke Um, Matthew gives nine Beatitudes and Luke gives four Beatitudes followed by four woes. So what's going on here? If Luke didn't attack the scribes and the Pharisees in the way that he presented the material, because a Roman official could care less about scribes and Pharisees, right? Then what was Luke doing? The answer is that he is contrasting two different value systems, Two different ways to measure God's blessing. If you look at the, the Beatitudes and the Woes, you're going to see two different ways to measure. Two different ways that people measure God's blessing. Does God love me? Is God blessing me? He's, he's contrasting two outlooks on this life and the next. Most importantly, he is contrasting how two different types of people relate to God. God. The first group, by their values, show that they are blessed. And the second group, by their values, show that they are cursed. And as we study these, we're going to see something that all of us know but, but need to be reinforced. And you know what that is? Eternal values are the opposite of temporal values, aren't they? We also will see a continual theme in Luke And that's a theme in Scripture, and that is of great reversals. Luke is a book of great gospel, great reversals, and we see it already in these Beatitudes. And so here's a question, or here's what we're going to look at today. What is the attitude of a believer? What is the attitude of a believer? Jesus looks at his disciples, and he begins to teach, and he gives four Beatitudes— Four blessings, four characteristics. The first one, the first one that we're going to look at is described by the last three. The the first three are also how a believer views himself and the last one changes the frame of reference in how the world views the believer. And so we're going to look at that today. The first thing that, that Jesus said is blessed are you, notice he uses the word you, whereas Matthew uses uh, just a third person um, uh, pronoun. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now what is Luke saying here? Luke is not saying that the poor as a class are especially blessed. I'm sure there are, Some sitting here saying, I've been poor, and there's nothing blessed about that. Are you with me on that? Honestly, poor is not a blessing. And I agree. The richness of the eternal state argues against the idea that Jesus is speaking of simply financial hardship here. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's not talking about simple financial hardship To understand what Luke is saying, we need to turn back in Scripture just a few chapters. Go back to chapter number 4 in verse number 18. Chapter 4, verse 18. By the way, being poor in itself is not a blessing, but blessings come out of that in our lives, right? I did want to clarify that because I know somebody will say something to me afterwards. (laughs) Luke says this. He says, The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, let me ask you something. If somebody is in financial hardship, does it do any good for you to walk up to them and say, you know, I got some really good news. Yeah, I just saved a bunch of money on my car insurance. Of course, we understand that word good news is actually the word gospel, isn't it? And so the Messiah is preaching the good news of the gospel to the poor. What kind of poor? Answer, the people who understand their spiritual poverty. You understand your spiritual poverty. This word poor is interesting. It, it, there are several words for poor in the New Testament. This one means begging poor. You are so poor that you are dependent upon others for your livelihood. And so you beg. beg. Another word is to, it means to stoop. It means to stoop. You are that poor. And when the gospel is preached and the spirit convicts, a person who is converted realizes how spiritually poor and bankrupt he is. Right? Right? That was your experience most likely. Unfortunately, there are always people who think that the best way to measure God's blessing is to look at somebody's bank account, right? We call that the, the, the prosperity gospel. How tempting is it for us to rely upon money? It's very tempting, isn't it? We rely upon money both for ministry, for our own personal happiness, but this way of counting our blessings is spiritually impoverished. Among other things, it fails to recognize the grace that God gives to the poor. Although poverty itself is not a blessing, people who are poor in Christ have God's blessing. What is the blessing? Blessed are the poor for what? Theirs is the kingdom of God. There's the blessing. Literally, if you recognize your spiritual poverty, you recognize it in Jesus Christ, the whole kingdom belongs to you. Isn't that wonderful? The whole kingdom, with all of its spiritual riches, In this life, we have spiritual riches and unimaginable treasures in the life to come. Isn't that wonderful? But to receive those blessings, we have to admit our spiritual poverty and come to God for grace. What does spiritual poverty look like? Spiritual poverty looks like you look in the mirror after reading God's Word, and you see how sinful you are. The mirror of God's Word. You understand that you are bankrupt when it comes to doing anything that pleases God. You realize that there is no way in your own power, of your own will, that you can do anything to get yourself to heaven. Because you are spiritually bankrupt. That's what it looks like. That's, that's, that's the poor that, that Jesus is talking about here in Luke. But there's something else. Look at the second characteristic, and I want you to read it carefully with me. Secondly, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Now, in this one, it's changed just a little bit. There's an adverb added in there. What's the adverb? Now, now, right? Oftentimes, financial poverty is coupled with material hunger. And in ancient times, they would have gone hand in hand. Material poverty and material hunger. Financial poverty, material hunger. But Jesus is not talking about Financial poverty, and material hunger. Jesus is talking about spiritual hunger. When when one realizes their spiritual bankruptcy, you know what they hunger for? What did you hunger for when you when you realize how spiritually bankrupt you are? You you hungered for the grace and righteousness of God, didn't you? I know I did. I was thinking about that um, early this morning just hungering for the righteousness of God. I need the righteousness of God. I need the righteousness of Christ. Not only do I need the righteousness of Christ applied to my life, I need actual righteousness that comes from Christ as well. I'm reminded of of, of Psalms. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul what? My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This world is a dry and weary land where there is no living water that refreshes your soul. Only Jesus Christ can refresh the soul. And so we hunger and we thirst for the refreshment that comes only through Jesus Christ, right? I am thinking of Psalm 42, as a deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And so the, the psalmist is expressing the, the hunger and the thirst that the righteous experience. The righteous hunger for the righteousness of Christ. The unrighteous don't. Only when the Spirit of God comes to convict them. And then Jesus goes on, particularly in John, to say that I am the bread of life. And if you hunger, come to me and I'll feed you, right? I will feed your soul. Jesus Christ feeds your soul. Wonderful. Blessed are you who are hungry when now. We were made with spiritual hunger for truth. We were made with an unfulfilling longing for eternity, a desperate craving for the love uh, that is at the heart of the universe. Only God can satisfy and Jesus has promised that his disciples, blessed are you when you hunger now for you will be what? Satisfying. We drink deeply from the fountains of grace. We will eat richly from the banquet of his word and we will find our satisfaction in him. So wonderful, wonderful, wonderful truth. The hungry are men and women who outwardly and inwardly are painfully deficient in the things essential to life as God meant it to be. And since they can't help themselves, they turn to God on the basis of his promise. And these men and women and these these alone find God's help in Jesus. These are the believers who seek help from Jesus in their own helplessness. And they're hungering and they're thirsting for something that only God can quench. And while there is hunger now, while there's hunger now, one day... One day there's gonna be satisfaction, isn't there? What a glorious day that will be, when our hunger is satisfied completely. Let me ask you a question. What, how is your hunger for genuine righteousness? How is your thirst for righteousness? How deep is your desire? for God how deep is your desire not only to see Christ but to desire to be genuinely once and for all righteous with no temptation to sin seeing the complete satisfaction of everything in life right in front of you Jesus Christ on his glorious throne how deep is your hunger now, you will be satisfied. Not a wonderful promise. Then he says, "This. This is a hard one. Blessed are you who weep. When here's that word again. Now, for you shall what laugh. Doesn't this sound great? Whether they say laughter is the best medicine." I want you to notice the timing. Weep now, laugh later. And what is Jesus referring to when he talks about uh, weeping? Well, he's referring to the sorrows that we suffer in a fallen world. What are the sorrows? What do we weep for in a fallen world? Well, I think all of us who know Christ would number one say we weep for our own sins, don't we? To shed this body of sin Will be glorious. So we weep for our sins. We repent of all the wrong that we have done. But it doesn't stop there. The weeping is uh, weeping for the sins of others, lamenting the dishonor that they do to God. We weep for the sins of our society, don't we? Knowing that we ourselves are implicated in their iniquity. We weep for the lost, praying that God will rescue them. We we weep for those who suffer, grieving over the natural disasters down in Florida, grieving over the lost loved ones like Christy was talking about, and, and weeping for those people, armed conflicts, social injustices that happen day in and day out, day after day after day. And we weep for loved ones that we have lost, knowing that they're gone and will not return. But by and large, the weeping that Jesus is talking about here is a God-centered weeping. There are times when life is so full of sorrow that we wonder if we will ever laugh again. Everybody, anybody ever been there? I'm sure you have, right? Will I ever laugh again? But as we weep, we hold on to this promise that godly sorrow will turn to joy. And one day, God will take away our sinful nature. And Praise be to God, we will never sin again. One day, he will right every wrong and gather his people into his eternal city. One day, all of our sufferings and sorrows will come to an end what laughter will ring through heaven then as we stand in the golden city reveling in, and I I genuinely believe this, reveling in the surprise of our redemption. The sudden realization. Have you ever, well, let me, before I get there, have you ever thought, you know, this is too good to be true? And it was. (laughs) Happens all the time, doesn't it? This is too good to be true. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. Well, just think one day we're going, to st- we're going to wake up and the sudden realization that all of our hopes have come true. It's not too good to be true. We will burst into everlasting laughter of joy. Have you ever been so happy that the only thing you knew, knew to do was to laugh? So I ask you do you understand your spiritual bankruptcy? Do you have a profound hunger for righteousness? Is your life filled with sadness over your sin? But at the same time, has your poverty become riches? Because you've stepped into the kingdom and now you know what is yours in Christ? Has your hunger turned into satisfaction because the very righteousness of Christ covers you? Because God has imparted righteousness to you? And has your joy, or or I'm sorry, has your sorrow turned to laughter because you're filled with joy over what God has done? If that's you, then count yourself among the blessed. One more, and we're going to finish. What's the last characteristic of a Christian in this little section here? Rejection. The last beatitude is the blessing of rejection. And now, if I can use a cinemagraphic, I think is a word, uh, if I got it wrong, let me know, um, where the lens changes from looking at you to looking at how people view you. And so we see, blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Matter of fact, leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. And for so their fathers did to the prophets. This beatitude refers to how the world sees you. If the world excludes you, reviles you, despises your name as evil, then rejoice because you will have great reward. Now, he's speaking most specifically to his apostles who all suffered violent persecution, most of whom who died horrific deaths at the hands of their enemies. But this joy is not only for the apostles, but for everyone who's persecuted for Jesus' sake. And we know the stories, don't we? We know the stories throughout Christian history of Christians subjected to horrible persecution. But most of us do not know someone who has suffered. We don't know someone personally who has suffered horrible persecution because of Christ, do we? But persecution is coming. As a matter of fact, I would say it's here. Consider Kevin Cochran. Some of you may know that name. He had been fire chief of Atlanta. He was basically forced out of his job as the Atlanta city fire chief. Do you know why? Because he wrote a Sunday school curriculum for young men in his Bible study class in an evangelical church. And you know what his offense was? He upheld a biblical view of marriage and sexuality. And he was fired as fire chief of Atlanta. Think about this: just a generation ago, Atlanta was practically the buckle of the Bible Belt. Is that persecution? Is that is that excluding you, reviling your name? Certainly is. But how about even more recently? Let's go down to Australia. Guy named Andrew Thorburn. He was the chief executive of the Essendon Football Club. That's Australian rules football. It's the equivalent of being the general manager of an NFL team. Do you know how long he held that post? Less than 24 hours. What was this crime? By the way, this happened last week. What was this crime? He was chairman of the board of City on a Hell, Hill, City on a Hill church in Melbourne. It's an Anglican church with evangelical beliefs. You know what it teaches? It teaches a biblical view of, of sexuality. It teaches the sanctity of human life, and for that, he was fired in less than 24 hours, and you should have read what people said about him. Even even the owner of the team. We can't have this kind of a, basically a bigot. This kind of a person. This happened just last week in Australia. It's happening here in the United States. I'm gonna give another example, and, and I don't know if this example will prove out to be true. Many of you know the, the rapper named Kanye West, right? And years ago, he made a profession of faith. I don't know if he's genuinely saved. It, if you look at his life, the right people are reviling him, if you know what I mean. But he talks about God all the time. He's pro-life. He's pro-family. And he's speaking out truth. And what are they doing to him? They're trying to destroy him, Right? Now I pray for him that that he will persevere because Jesus said the one who perseveres shall be saved. And the only way we'll know if his faith is genuine is if he perseveres, right? But this is happening right now. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. And this is how it's gonna start. Teenagers, I have a question for you, teens. Your college admission may be affected by your church attendance. Listen to me, teenagers. There may come a time when your employment is in jeopardy because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Teens, children, on that day, you will choose to say either Christ is worth it or I'd rather have the world. Is Christ worth it? If you choose Christ, Jesus said in no uncertain terms, great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice, leap for joy in that day. Is Christ worth Losing my vocation or my education for? The answer, you have to answer, but I'll tell you, it's yes, yes, amen, yes. And great is our joy. Anyone who knows Christ knows it's a resounding yes. Isn't that true? The Beatitudes, they they characterize those who know Christ. We realize our spiritual poverty and bankruptcy, and we turn to Christ and receive the kingdom. We hunger for the righteousness of Christ. We're satisfied for all of eternity. We weep because of our sin, the sin of the world that doesn't glorify God as they were designed to do, and as a result, we will laugh in eternity. Because our values and goals and orientation are different from the world, they will hate us, exclude us, revile us, spurn us, and we leave for joy because we know that we have great rewards. These are all examples of the great reversals of Scripture. And indeed, this is the ultimate reversal, isn't it? A short time of poverty for eternal riches. A short time of hunger for eternal satisfaction. A short time of weeping for eternal laughter. A short time of rejection for eternal love. And eternal leaping for joy and great reward. Is Jesus Christ worth it? The answer is yes, yes, amen, yes. Lord, thank you so much for the encouraging words of Jesus Christ. I'm certain that um, many here will face some form of persecution, but all of us who know you have realized our poverty, our spiritual bankruptcy. And we hunger for the righteousness of Christ and we weep over sin that dishonors you. And so, Lord, we're promised joy, satisfaction, laughter, the whole kingdom of God. I pray that these these, uh, short little verses that we looked at, these Beatitudes, will encourage and strengthen our faith. But Lord, there may be somebody here who these values are not theirs. And I pray that you will show them, Lord, their need for you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.